Hello and welcome to the Every Woman podcast. I'm Anna, editor of Every Woman, and every month we'll be bringing you the stories, insights and opinions on a wide range of topics. Asking the questions you want the answers to and doubtless prompting some more in the process. Today we're on the road and we're at the House of Lords and we're talking about happiness, which is obviously a big topic. And our guest today is Professor Lord Richard Layard, one of the authors of a groundbreaking book on the subject, The Origins of Happiness. Richard is also the director of the Wellbeing Programme at the Centre for Economic Performance at the LSE and chairman for Action for Happiness, which we'll talk about later. So welcome, Richard. Lovely to be here. Thank you for joining us. Right. So happiness is a big topic, as I said, and it's often seen in a very individual context these days. So how important was it to view it in a more macro perspective? And what was the the purpose of of this research and of writing the book? Well, we think that the way we should judge our society is by how happy people are, uh, which is, of course, the great uh, 18th century Enlightenment idea that progress means an increase in happiness. It doesn't just mean an increase in wealth. It means that people are enjoying their lives, feeling fulfilled, fully satisfied um, by their experience. Uh, And, of course, uh, if that is the way we should judge our society has huge implications for policy. Policy should be aimed um, at producing conditions for the greatest possible happiness uh, and huge implications for how we should lead our lives. Uh, And obviously what we should be doing is trying to create as much happiness in the world as we can. That's the ethical principle that follows from that idea as well. But obviously, uh, if we are trying to produce as much happiness as possible, and policymakers are trying to do the same, we need to know what causes happiness. And well, that's what this book's about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, what is happiness? It is um, an interesting topic for debate. I don't know whether there, there are specific uh, cultural differences. I understand that you talked to, I think, over 100 different people from 100 different nations about what makes them happy. What what can we deduce? Can Is there a formula for happiness? Well, happiness means feeling good uh, uh, and unhappiness means feeling bad. That's And important. there's a whole spectrum of <laughs> mm. that. And I think at all times of our waking life, we are somewhere on that spectrum. And what is important is that we're high up at the upper end of that spectrum rather than down in the pits. Uh, and I don't think that that is a cult thing which varies between uh, cultures. That's a human universal, feeling good or feeling bad. Now, what causes happiness is a different thing and may vary to some extent between cultures. Actually, uh, the research which we've done shows a huge degree of similarity, uh, not only between uh, different advanced countries, which is what the book is mainly about, but actually other research shows that it's not that different uh, when you get to poorer countries. So... Uh, there's a human universal feeling good or bad, um, and then, then there's then understanding what what causes that. And importantly, money is quite a low predictor of happiness. Money, the old adage, money can't buy you happiness, is actually true. Yes, um, huge number of factors, of course, influence whether somebody is happy or not, and money is one, but it only explains about one percent of the variation. Huge variation, actually, in happiness that there is in the population. Uh, the main factors that are influencing happiness are 
on the outside of our lives, our human relationships, and then on our inside, our physical health, but even more our mental health. Uh, and that's perhaps the most important new contribution, actually, of the book, that it, it is really highlighting uh, the importance, actually, of diagnosed even uh, mental illness as a factor explaining the huge variation uh, and the number of people who are in misery um, is more due to uh, mental illness than to poverty or to unemployment. So I'm in a funny situation because I spent most of my life working on poverty and unemployment, and I think they really matter. But I now think mental health matters even more. Um, and it perhaps was neglected in the past because people didn't think there was anything much they could do about it. But of course, we do now now have re really good evidence-based psychological therapies, uh, which can uh, lead to recovery uh, in well over half the cases. So uh, it's really important to have that side of things, the inside part of uh, the causes of happiness, given equal attention to the external causes, which are perhaps more common in the public debate. But I think the public debate is moving now. It's really, really good. There are many, many politicians uh, who are really talking now seriously about mental illness as uh, a, a major social problem. I come from the London School of Economics. <laughs> Beveridge was the <laughs> director of the London School of Economics. He identified five problems, but what he left out was mental illness mm. and uh, or mental health, to put it the positive way. And I think now that a top priority is to get better treatment available for people from with mental health problems within the NHS, but also to reorientate our schools so that they have a, a much more explicit goal, the happiness and mental well-being of the children. So in terms of ha happiness and, and how it affects society, is it incumbent on governments or who is it incumbent on to make sure that they're, uh, you know, the people in their country or the people in their company or whoever, whatever organisation we're talking about, are happy? And, and how can that benefit economic performance? And Well, it, it's incumbent on everybody, isn't it? So, I mean, if you ask what is the purpose of a firm, uh, I think we should think of the purpose of a firm in an ethical context. Um, it's to give value to the shareholders, surely, but it's also uh, to increase the well-being of the customers and, really importantly, to uh, give a, a, a good experience of work to the work, workers. Uh, and it's, uh, it's now becoming obvious that actually there's no conflict between these objectives, and that's helpful <laughs> because <laughs> basically happy workers are more productive, they give more value to uh, the customers and they give more value to the shareholders. But um, we are now seeing a real change in, in business where people are thinking, A, that work needs to be reorganised in, in a way which appeals more to the better side of people. People are, are a bit fed up with... Um, the kind of work organisation which uses fear as a motive uh, uh, and the understanding that actually uh, a, a bit of joy is, is one of the best <laughs> <laughs> sources of productivity. Um, uh, and also, of course, uh, employers are realising that mental illness is costing them a packet. Um, it causes half the absenteeism 
half the what they call presenteeism, that's people not having their mind on the job. And, of course, from the government's point of view, it also causes a half of all disability benefits. So that's a big cost to us as, as taxpayers. Why should governments care about people's well-being? And, and, you know, how would policy change if that was the main objective? Well, they should care about it um, because they should have a view about what is progress. Uh, and I, I'm excited um, that many countries are beginning to ask that question, uh, in particular the Organisation of Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, you know, which is the Rich Countries Club. They have adopted well-being uh, as the goal for member countries. That is a, requires a real rethink of priorities so that it doesn't just say that we've got to be economically dynamic. We've got to give a satisfying life to our population. The other interesting thing is, why would politicians take this seriously? Actually, if you study the outcomes of elections, uh, you statistically, I mean, uh, Clinton said, uh, you know, it's the economy stupid. Well, actually, it's not. Uh, happiness, the happiness of the people is a better predictor of whether the government gets re-elected uh, than all <laughs> the economic variables you can think of. So we, politicians, it's in the interest of, of them to rethink what it is that they're aiming at. So how we feel is the most powerful uh, imperative to do anything, really, I guess. It is. It yeah. is. What was progress previously then? Was it this idea? I mean, you've talked about the fear, and fear is often a much easier uh, thing to access than happiness for a lot of people. How do we change that? How, how do you know, we change that from the top down? Well, I think um, we have a, a, a very crude uh, theory of incentives has been imported uh, into the West, um, mainly from American business schools, uh, that money is really the only motivator um, and you have to have high-powered financial incentives um, to get people to do anything because uh, otherwise why would they do anything? Well, the, the answer is they would do things because people like doing things well and they in, enjoy doing a good job um, and they find that satisfying if they're put in the way where they're able to do it. So the better principles of work organisation <clears throat> are clear goals for people, which show that they're part of some big whole that's trying to achieve something, and they've personally got a role in that, but then some autonomy about how they do that role and, of course, some support, and then at the end, of course, recognition. But what recognition do people want? They're much more appreciative of people saying, goodness, that was fantastic what you did, rather than, oh, by the way, I'm going to give you 3% uh, uh, extra because that was the contract which we made six months ago. And I, I think the, the worst thing of all, of course, is that it's become quite fashionable to say your job is on the line. This is an appalling way of thinking and speaking um, about how a worker should deliver a good service to their clients. So uh, we meant, you mentioned earlier uh, that schools needed to take a different role in creating the conditions for happiness and, and the understanding of that. Why, why is that? One of the most interesting things we found in this book is that if you want to predict whether somebody is going to have a happy life as an adult, uh, the better, best predictor um, is their emotional health uh, when they are, let's say, 16. That actually predicts better 
than everything we know about the qualifications they get, even right up to university. Uh, so we must have a more balanced approach in schools. Uh, the other really interesting thing we found in the book was that schools do make a huge difference to the happiness of their children. And so people sometimes say schools well, don't, don't make a difference, it's all parents. It's not true. The, the, the impact which schools make on the happiness of their children is almost as great as the impact they make on their academic learning. Um, but, of course, that impact can be good or it can be bad, and we need a much more systematic approach to how we uh, teach children how to live as well as how to earn a living. Uh, and we do now have some very good programs and curricula um, for teaching life skills. Uh, we're involved in one at the London School of Economics for children from 11 to 14, one hour a week, I think that's a revolutionary program which we're going to be launching later this year, um, having done the trial and shown the effect of it. Uh, and the same sort of thing is needed throughout primary schools. We've got to just get back to um, an idea that we are trying to produce whole people in schools, that a whole person is not somebody who's just focused on the test uh, and on the the GCSE English baccalaureate or whatever, um, music, art, drama, these things are really important for children uh, and for their development and what they carry into their adult life. Do you think, I mean, you talked earlier about, um, you know, the, the sort of theory of incentives that, that has come from primary places like American business schools, this, this sort of idea of money, money, money. Um, do you think in terms of schools that we're teaching the wrong incentives through testing? Well, well, and, you know, the, is that how we laying the foundation? For I, I think this is the, the fundamental issue is what are we saying to children about the purpose of their life? Are we saying the purpose of your life is to be more successful than anybody else? Which is, of course, a, a, a completely hopeless uh, goal for society because it's impossible for everybody to be more successful than other people. If one person is more successful, somebody else is less successful. It's what you could call a zero-sum game. We need a, people to be educated to create a greater positive sum of happiness. So that's why we founded this thing called Action for Happiness, because we think that the goal for people in life should be to contribute to creating the most happiness in the world that you can. So... The members of this organisation, there are now 100,000 of them, uh, they pledge to lead their lives so as to create as much happiness as they can uh, and as little misery. Uh, that, of course, is just a one-off pledge. Uh, but we know that people don't lead good lives unless they meet regularly uh, for inspiration. Like when people go to church, they come out the whole <laughs> feeling inspired and uplifted uh, but very few people go to church it, many of us can't believe the, the creeds but we still need the inspiration to lead good lives uh, and to be inspired to to uh, contribute uh, and to give rather than just to focus on what we can get so action for happiness is, is creating uh, hundreds and then thousands of groups of people who meet regularly uh, around these issues and it's providing them with materials 
to conduct their events. So it starts with a course, which is called Exploring What Matters. It's really amazing. I, I take no credit for it. Mm. <laughs> but uh, this is an eight-session course, um, very well uh, structured. Uh, volunteers are leaders, um, but we've evaluated the impact of it on people's life satisfaction, extraordinary bigger impact than the impact of getting a job, for example. Um, but also an impact, of course, on their desire to contribute uh, to the rest of society. And uh, we have great hopes of this. The funny thing is that um, if you look around, you ask people, you know, there's a sort of void associated with the decline of religious uh, belief. What organisations are there that are trying to plug that void around the, the central issue of what is the purpose of your life? Mm. There really aren't many organisations. There are lots of organisations that do brilliant work on particular human problems. Um, and there's a lot of idealism around, of course. But there are very few organisations whose chief focus is to keep on fueling that idealism desire to contribute um, and a sense of perspective uh, that you get when you realise you're part of something that's an awful lot bigger than yourself. It's the idea of, of happiness being a group effort, a social yeah, exactly. effort, rather than just an individual egotistical, I'm going to try and be happy. Exactly, exactly. No, I mean, um, the, the, the search for individual personal happiness, if that's the only thing that you're trying to do, um, is not likely to be very successful. On your own, no. <laughs> uh, I mean, John Stuart Mill said, and John Stuart Mill was a great believer in happiness, but he said, you know, if you spend your time thinking about whether you're happy, you, you're not going to be happy. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll become happy by thinking about the happiness of others and how you can contribute to it and be part of something bigger. I, was, I wanted to return to this idea of success and, and how possibly in order to be happier as people and, and as organisations and as, as a country uh, and as a world, you know, that we may have to redefine what we consider to be success. So how can people marry up the idea of, of success with happiness? Oh, no problem, is that? I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, you have a to successful define... person is somebody who makes the most contribution to the happiness of others that they're capable of. I mean, some people obviously have more talents than others, um, but if you're doing the most that you can to make the world a happier place, you're a successful person. Right. So that is the new the new success. So yeah. you talked in the book about measuring um, in units of happiness um, as, as a sort of a KPI for the future. I mean, units yeah. of happiness. Tell, tell the people listening a little bit about that. Well, for example, in Britain, the... Uh, Office of National Statistics is asking people, overall, how satisfied are you with your life these days? That's a good measure. And we can see whether uh, we're moving towards our society by seeing how that the answer to that question change. And I think what's really interesting about this whole movement is that it is about giving more weight and more importance to people's inner feelings rather than that external wealth or anything else and if you ask where is this coming from 
I think it's coming from you know, where, what's the support? Where's the support for this great movement? This is a world happiness movement that we're all part of, uh, those of us who are engaged in this. I think it's coming from the increased position of women in the public life of the world um, and the fact that women are have and always have been more interested in people's inner feelings than men have been. And uh, I think this is why the World Happiness Movement will succeed. That's that's a fascinating point. I mean, are women more interested in happiness then? Or, I mean, men presumably want to be happy, but have they traditionally been perhaps corralled into the incentives that possibly weren't making them happy? They've never been so interested in actually looking at and talking about how, how you feel. Um, of course, they... They want to feel good, but they don't uh, address it directly. They typically don't address it directly. They find it quite difficult to talk about. Uh, they find it much easier to talk about objective external things. I think the situation is changing because men as well as women are becoming much more open, much more psychologically aware, much more willing to talk about what really matters and less satisfied with talking just about externals, cars, houses, income, and the sort of typical conversation yeah. uh, about things which are not actually so central to people as their relationships. But I suppose it's it's harder to measure relationships. And actually, a question I'd written here, because you, in the book, at the, the codicil of the book is the science of well-being over the life course. Mm. And I, I was really interested in the use of the word science, because science and happiness seem to be maybe not the most obvious bedfellows. But how important was it to take a scientific approach in the book, for example, to the idea of happiness? No, I mean, it is, it is a scientific study. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's based on numbers. Yeah, 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 of course. Science, is, science is, uh, is about measuring things and we can measure happiness and therefore we can have a science of happiness. And that has been one of the great things, of course, that's happened in the last 30 years, that this science has developed from almost nowhere to being um, a, a proper science in its own right. Uh, and... Uh, Without that, any aspirations that we could have for society would have been much more difficult. The, the happiness revolution, if you like, that's around the corner, is going to be based on, one, a, a, an element of disillusion with economic growth. How, how is it that we're so much richer but we're not happier? Mm. Two, the emergence of the new science of mm. happiness. Three, the incre increasing role of women in making it acceptable to talk about feelings um, as the, 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 the ultimate reality for humans. These are the three forces that are producing the revolution. Um, in terms of the, the, the research you did for the book, what was the most interesting or unexpected thing that uh, came about for you? Well, the most unexpected thing was this extraordinary role of schools Mm. Um, in affecting uh, how happy children are. Um, people have been so sceptical. They, they were at one time sceptical about the role of schools actually in producing um, learning in children. And it was said, you know, you, you really learn if your parents read to you and if they do this, that and the other, and the school doesn't make that much difference. That's been shown to be complete nonsense. So, I mean, we can identify... Individual teachers who've, 
the, you know, the, the effect of the individual teacher you have at the age of eight, we can see the effect of that, for example, on how happy you are at 16 or how likely you are to get a job at 20. That's incredible. If people don't get that kind of input, is it too late for them then when they hit their 20s or 30s to, to find happiness? Do they have to relearn? No, no. Um, people can, people's happiness does change, of course, due to circumstances and to things happening inside them. And people can change their own happiness by both routes. And I do think that um, we are now finding that for many people, um, the idea that you can actually gain control over your own um, thought processes in a way that will improve your mental well-being, that is taking quite root mm. and uh, I think practices like mindfulness, other types of meditation, therapies and things that people have learnt from various types of therapy um, have given people a control over their mental life which people hadn't realised they, ha- they could have. You talk about schools, investment in, in schools and, and investment in programmes like the one that you run in the LSE. Yes. Uh, you know. yes, I mean, there's a great trial going on now of mindfulness in schools. We, let's hope that that gives good results and we can then train teachers. All teachers obviously should be trained um, in the elements of uh, what affects a, children, a child's happiness and mental well-being. Mm. Um, it should be a central part of, of teacher training. And those principles then can be carried on through the different stages of the of the life course, through work, through, yeah. yeah. And uh, so how long is it going to take, the revolution, do you think? <laughs> and will it happen uh, all over the world at the same time? Or what, what, what does it look like? What does the picture of happiness look like at the moment in 10 years, 20 years' time? Uh, I think, it, of course, it's uh, bottom-up is the best form of revolution. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and it's, it's going to be mainly that way um, because people will demand it. Uh, and I think that it's going quite well. We will see more and more uh, interaction between politicians and uh, the population um, with the politicians responding to pressure to do things that make more sense in terms of happiness and not just in terms of somehow getting people faster from London to Birmingham for 50, <laughs> 50 billion pounds, which if you think what that would do if it was spent on mental health and children's education. That has to be a new concept, really, of the role of government because if you go back to before 1870, um, basically government just um, maintained law and order and defence. Uh, and then from 1870 onwards, there was the idea that governments could help people to be productive workers. Uh, and now I think we have to have the idea that governments can help people to be good parents, good partners, uh, and people who have enjoyable lives. Wonderful. Professor Leard, thank you so my, much. My pleasure. If you want to get involved with Action for Happiness, then go to actionforhappiness.org where you can enrol in an Exploring What Matters course. And thank you all for joining us as well on this Every Woman podcast. And we look forward to continuing the conversation with you next time. Don't forget, in the meantime, there's a wealth of information, interest and further talking points on the Every Woman network and app if you want to access on the move. So until we meet again, have a great day and keep on living your best life.